I lose control. I, I hit her in the head. It was the left first, and then I hit with right, and then I don't know. It's it's just it's a disgusting situation, man. How long would you say you were choking her? Like a minute, uh, more? What would you say? Until she wasn't moving. That was convicted murderer William Cumber describing to a prosecutor how he beat and strangled his live-in girlfriend, Sabine Musil Bueller, a hotel owner whose body was buried in the sand down the road from her business on Anna Maria Island. The story behind that murder is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the latest development in a shocking story involving a Lakeland City Commissioner who was indicted on a second-degree murder charge in connection with the fatal shooting of a suspected shoplifter. Michael Dunn owns a military surplus store in Lakeland, and authorities said he shot a man who tried to steal a hatchet from his store. His attorneys have argued that Dunn acted in self-defense. My guest for that segment will be Lakeland Ledger Justice reporter John Chambliss. Later, I'll discuss the slang of Sabine Musil Bueller, owner of the famous Haley's Hotel and Anna Maria Island located on the Gulf Coast in Manatee County. Musil Bueller was killed 10 years ago by her boyfriend, an ex-con by the name of Bill Cumber. It took nearly seven years before the victim's remains were found. My special guest for that segment will be former Sarasota Herald Tribune reporter Elizabeth Johnson. But my first segment is on a case that became one of the country's biggest news stories of last week. I'll discuss the arrest of a South Florida man accused of mailing at least 13 potential explosive devices to various outspoken critics of President Trump. He has been charged today with five federal crimes, including interstate transportation of an explosive, illegal mailing of explosives, threats against former presidents and certain other persons, threatening interstate communications, and assaulting current and former federal officers. That was U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions listing the charges against suspected mail bomber Caesar Syok, an Aventura man who was arrested Friday by federal authorities. Sayok sent at least 13 explosives to people across the country who have publicly sparred with or criticized President Trump, including 2016 Democratic nominee for president Hillary Clinton, Democratic Senator Cory Booker, political donor George Soros, and Academy Award-winning film actor Robert De Niro. National media have reported that the 56-year-old Sayok, who was employed as a DJ and food delivery driver, has a long criminal history dating back to 2002. His charges include theft, fraud, and drug possession. Notably, in 2002, Sayok was accused of calling Florida power and light and threatening to blow up a building owned by the utility company. According to a story in the Washington Post, Sayok said the explosion would be, quote, worse than September 11th. He was sentenced to probation for that charge. 
The Post interviewed Sayoc's family and acquaintances, and also an attorney who represented him and his family. The attorney told the Post that Sayoc's family is overwhelmed with grief, and that his mother has not spoken to her son in three years. The family also said Sayoc had never shown an interest in politics before. But that changed recently. One of Sayoc's cousins, who was interviewed in the piece, said he, too, never discussed politics with him, but indicated that he was mentally unstable. He said Sayoc probably lost his mind around the time Trump got elected. Sayoc, as it turned out, was an enthusiastic supporter of Trump. Millions of television viewers around the world watched as law enforcement officers seized his white van, which was covered with pro-Trump stickers. Sayoc reportedly lived in the van. The Palm Beach Post reported that Sayoc worked part-time as a DJ at Ultra Gentleman's Club, a strip club in West Palm Beach located a short distance from Trump International Golf Club. Sayoc would bring duffel bags with him to work. His friend and co-worker, Scott Meggs, told the Palm Beach Post that Sayoc would get distracted while inside the booth. More specifically, he'd let the songs play for too long. It got so bad that the dancers would complain about him. Here is Meggs being interviewed by CBS 12 out of West Palm Beach. Caesar's been a friend of mine for over 20 years. We've worked together in 10 different clubs. When he used to come in, he used to bring in these two big duffel bags, and everybody wondered why he's bringing in two huge duffel bags to DJ. He was always up there in the DJ booth working on something, and now, hindsight being 2020, he could have been making bombs right here in the DJ booth. But for the most part, those who worked with Sayoc at Ultra did not have much negative to say about him. The club's general manager, for instance, said he was a funny person who was regularly seen joking with people. Meggs told the Post he never saw Sayoc get in a fight with anyone in the 20 years he's known him, and fights are a regular occurrence in the male entertainment industry. Meggs did say, however, that Sayoc seemed to be more outspoken about his political views more recently. He had never mentioned anything related to politics to Meggs until a couple months ago. Meggs said his friend made it clear to him that he wasn't a fan of Hillary Clinton or Democrats in general. His social media accounts were littered with negative comments aimed at noted Democrats, including former Vice President Joe Biden and former Attorney General Eric Holder. They, too, were targets of the mail bomber, according to the FBI. None of the mail devices detonated. Many were intercepted before they reached their intended targets. CNN reported that Sayoc told investigators after his arrest Friday in Plantation that the bombs would not have gone off, and he didn't want to hurt anyone. Here is FBI Director Christopher Wray describing the devices during a media conference. Each device consisted of roughly six inches of PVC pipe, a small clock, a battery, some wiring and what is known as energetic material, which is essentially potential explosives and material that give off heat and energy through a reaction to heat, shock, or friction. Ray emphasized that the explosives were not a hoax. They were real. As of Friday night, Sayoc was being held at a federal detention center in Miami. Coming up, a story out of Lakeland about an elected official indicted on a murder charge. Why are you running, Mr. Dunn? 
Why don't you just talk to us? Sir, do you have anything to sir. say to Lopez's family? What can you tell us? Do you have anything to say to Mr. Lopez's family, sir? ABC Action News Tampa reporter Michael Paluska and other TV reporters chased after former Lakeland City Commissioner Michael Dunn after he posted $150,000 bail Thursday night. Dunn was indicted last week on a charge of second-degree murder in connection with the October 3rd fatal shooting of 50-year-old Cristobal Lopez who was seen on her surveillance video attempting to walk out of Dunn's military surplus store with a hatchet he apparently wasn't going to pay for. Police said Dunn pulled a Glock handgun on Lopez and shot him in the body. A surveillance camera captured the shooting, and that video, which was released by Lakeland Police last Monday, went viral. News outlets across the country and beyond picked up the story about the elected official gunning down a suspected shoplifter. A debate has been raging whether Dunn was justified in shooting Lopez. But it hasn't been a case of Second Amendment advocates on one side and gun control advocates on the other. In fact, some of the former do not believe Dunn was justified in shooting Lopez. Here is Lakeland Ledger reporter John Shambliss. Even some big Second Amendment people have have said that he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to... Just, just let him go. Why not let him go? He pulls him back, and that's what kind of upset people, I guess, when they're when they're watching the video. Um, so, yeah, he he definitely has his supporters, and there were a lot there yesterday. But it's 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 not a crazed kind of pre-Michael Dunn sort of thing. That video that Shambliss mentioned showed Lopez grabbing a hatchet from inside the store. Then he tucks it into his pants. Dunn sees Lopez do that on a video monitor while seated in his office. Then he stands up, grabs his Glock, and tucks it under the waistband of his jeans. Dunn walks out and confronts Lopez, who tells Dunn that he will pay for it. Dunn, who watched as Lopez tried to walk out of the store with a hatchet, tells his cashier to call police. Lopez tries to make a break for the door, and Dunn grabs him. Lopez pushes open the door with his left hand while he is holding the hatchet with his right hand. Dunn doesn't let go of Lopez, who tries to pull away. As he does this, Lopez lets go of the door with his left hand and with the hatchet still in his right hand, catches the door. He tried to spin out of Dunn's grasp. Lopez seems to be holding the hatchet in his right hand, which he is also using to hold open the door. He raises his left arm, but he does so to break free from Gunn, who is grabbing at his T-shirt. Before Lopez can escape, Dunn fires two rounds into his body. In the video, you can see Lopez lying face down on the sidewalk. His body twitches for a few seconds before it lay motionless. Oddly, Dunn continued to stand over him, aiming his gun. He stood there holding the door open for 15 seconds before walking outside. That's something that the police noticed as well in in their report. He didn't, I think they say he he did not attempt to render aid. I don't know if, I just don't know. That's, I mean, he looks as if he's he's, uh, preparing for someone else or something. The 47-year-old business owner was elected Lakeland City Commissioner in January. He won a runoff election. But last week, 
Days after he was charged with murder, he stepped down from the commission. His wife delivered the resignation letter to City Hall because Dunn was still in jail. On Friday, commissioners chose a replacement, the same day that Dunn bailed out of jail. He refused to answer reporters' questions and even sprinted toward his vehicle to get away from them. But Dunn hired an attorney to represent him, who was accustomed to being hounded by reporters, Mike O'Mara, the same attorney who defended George Zimmerman in the 2012 shooting of Trayvon Martin. The Lopez family, meanwhile, hired their own attorney, Adam Kemp. He is a civil attorney who is with famed Orlando-based law firm Morgan & Morgan. Both lawyers addressed the media late last week. You look at that hatchet and you have to believe that, as everyone else who sees it, it's a deadly weapon. And when he decided to arm himself with a deadly weapon, bad things can happen to you. Nothing that I saw saw Mr. Lopez being aggressive towards him or threatening his life in any way. Nobody deserves to lose their life over $13 or $16 hatchet. O'Mara's reference to that hatchet is an indication of what may be looming if the case goes to trial. Dunn, his lawyers have said, felt threatened by the man he shot. Here again is John Chambliss. And that's the, that's the argument, I think, that his lawyers are going to try to try to use that he had this hatchet he i mean the lawyer one of the lawyers rusty franklin has told me that this could be considered a assault um he had the hatchet in his hand and he's he could he could he could have swung it at at michael it wasn't raised over his head but it was more like at his waist and he was holding it up and he said he felt threatened. He used the words, I, didn't, I felt like my, my skull might be split open or something like that. I think that's kind of the argument they're going to use. This story has rocked the city of Lakeland. Dunn is well known, a business leader and an elected official. The story has generated headlines far beyond Florida. The New York Times and the Washington Post have published stories about it. Chambliss talked to me about how much this case has dominated the discussion around Lakeland and the rest of Polk County, an area that's never short of riveting news stories. I mean, people were upset about it, and, and people were torn. Dunn had 50 to 60 people there yesterday in this small courtroom. It was, it was tough to, to move around. The mayor has commented about just how tragic it is for for both families, he says. Yeah, it's definitely um, the biggest story here in in a while. And we have a lot of big stories in Polk County. Lopez was survived by his father, who had accompanied him to the store, and his seven siblings. He was buried last Monday in Hardy County, where he was raised. If convicted of second-degree murder... Dunn faces up to life in prison. Coming up, the story of a hotel owner who was murdered by her criminal boyfriend 10 years ago. So Sabine's getting dressed and she's saying she can't go on with this anymore. What happens at that point? I lose control. I, I hit her in the head. Okay. With, uh, with, with my, your hand with or my, with an object with, or what? With my fist. No, with my fist. and Right hand or left hand? It was the left first, and then I hit with right, and then I don't know. It's, it's, just, it's a disgusting situation, man. 
That was convicted murderer William Cumber, describing to prosecutor Art Brown how he beat and strangled his girlfriend, Sabine Musil Bueller. That confession came almost seven years after he killed her. During the night of November 4, 2008, William Cumber confronted the woman he had been living with, a woman who had harbored a crush on him, even while he was in prison, the one who waited for him to be released, the one who wrote him letters, and the one who left her husband and moved in with him. It took only a month or so before Sabine realized she did not want to be with Cumber any longer. One of her pet peeves was cigarette smoke. She hated it and she hated the fact that Cumber smoked. She said something to him about it after he came inside following a smoke break. He didn't like what she had to say, and pretty soon he was wrapping his hands around her neck and choking her until she stopped moving or breathing. Such a violent act is not an everyday occurrence in a peaceful paradise like Anna Maria Island. It's a remote place that only stretches seven miles north to south. Anna Maria is a barrier island along the Gulf of Mexico, located in Manatee County. It's a short drive to Bradenton in Sarasota. It's often referred to as one of the last spots in the state that has preserved its old Florida atmosphere. Elizabeth Johnson is a former reporter with the Sarasota Herald Tribune. She covered crime in Manatee County during her time there. And here she is describing to me the island in more detail. Anna Maria Island is on the south side of the Tampa Bay, which I think most people are more familiar with. It's not far from Fiesta Key, which is a little more commercialized and touristy down in Sarasota. I would say Anna Maria has sort of retained some of its history and acquaintance of a, of a Florida beach town. Um, it does have some, you know, some people who vacation there, but it's less touched and less commercialized than some of those locations. Um, I, you know, and I, my family actually vacationed there when I was very young in the summer and everyone said, why are you here? No one comes here in the summer. You know, there were no restaurants uh, at the time there on the island. It, it was still um, very underdeveloped. Now, around 2015, it was up and coming a little bit more and there were grocery stores, restaurants, things like that on the island, but still very, I would say, old Florida. I would consider it a pretty quiet place, not necessarily known to all the vacationers to visit Florida. The place was like a dreamland for the German-born Sabine, who decided she would settle down there and build a new life for herself right on the water. Sabine and her husband, Tom Bueller, bought Haley's Motel and Resort in neighboring Holmes Beach in 2002. They renovated it and made it their own. Bueller was a carpenter, so he crafted all the beds himself. It was a favorite of visitors because no two rooms were the same. It wasn't so much a hotel as it was a home for rent, one that happened to be walking distance from the beach. The place was animal-friendly. There were pet parrots on the property, and squirrels would scurry up to the office and get fed. The landscape around it included butterfly bushes and fire bushes to attract hummingbirds. Sabine and her husband had found their paradise, but it wouldn't last. Running a beachfront hotel in Florida is challenging. 
There was always the threat of red tide and major storms. Nothing devastated the business more than the Great Recession, which nearly put them out of business. It also put a strain on the marriage. The two called it quits as a couple, but continued to run the hotel. As the marriage was unraveling, Tom Bueller had hired someone new to help him do some maintenance on the property. His name was Bill Cumber. Right away, Sabine grew attached to Cumber, who was 10 years younger. She considered him good-looking. He had run afoul of the law, but Sabine didn't care. It may have even boosted her interest in him. He was someone who needed a positive influence in his life, and she wanted to be that person. The pair met in 2005, but it wasn't long after that when Cumber went to prison for an arson conviction. Cumber served three and a half years after he set fire to a chair on a woman's porch. There were six people inside that house, including two children. He had set the fire because he had been asked by the homeowner to leave. Sabine and Cumber wrote letters while he was behind bars. When he got out, the pair moved in together. They found an apartment not far from Sabine's hotel. The two would walk to the beach, sit in a pavilion together just down the road from Haley's. They would drink wine and look at the water. On the surface, everything seemed okay, but it didn't take long for Sabine to sour on her new boyfriend. They were pen pals for about three years while he was incarcerated on that arson charge. Um, And then he was released in October 2008, and she died in November 2008. So the actual, you know, physical, when they're together, part of their relationship was not very long. As I mentioned, Cumber's smoking habit was a serious problem for Sabine. She had a deep-seated hatred for cigarettes. The Herald Tribune did a story on Sabine in 2007, a year before she died. The story was about her banning cigarettes at her hotel. She told the paper that if she was going to compete with other upscale hotels up and down the Gulf Coast, she would have to ban smoking. She added that she got tired of seeing and smelling stale cigarettes and ashtrays. Sometimes cigarette butts would be found in bird baths and bushes around the property. It got to be a hassle, so she instituted the ban. Cumber's incessant smoking is what led to the fight that led to her decision to end the relationship. So I walk back into the living room. She's getting dressed. She's just, well, she had already put her pants on. She had her top on. She was doing her shoes. Mm-hmm. And um, she said that she couldn't do this relationship anymore because of certain issues and stuff. So Okay, so she said she's going to end the relationship? For, uh, yeah, she said that it was getting stressful. Cumber gave Art Brown the prosecutor who interviewed him more details about how he attacked Sabine. Just give me a rough idea how many times he hit her. Two. Just two times? Just two times. Did you pick up any items and strike with any, like, sharp items or anything like that? No. Where did you hit her on her body? Uh, Forehead, and I don't know where I made contact on the face. I don't know. Did she bleed from those? Was she sitting on the couch when you hit her? Yes. Did she bleed from those injuries? I noticed that she was bleeding from the, in, the, the blow to the forehead. I couldn't, I didn't notice the face. Okay. Did she appear to lose consciousness? Not that point, no. Okay. So you struck her twice, and, uh, and you say she hasn't lost consciousness. What's her reaction to being struck? She gets scared, and she covers her face with her hands. 
Okay. And what what ha- what do you do at that point? I, I reached and grabbed her throat and started choking her out on. Sabine had remained married to Bueller. The two stayed close during the separation, even though he resented her being with Cumber. He suspected all along that Cumber was bad news. It was Bueller who formally reported to police that his wife had gone missing. After the investigation was launched, detectives told the media they did not suspect foul play because there was no evidence to suggest it. In spite of what was being reported, people were suspicious, and they automatically assumed Sabine was dead. Days and weeks went by, and Sabine's family, including her 90-year-old father and her two brothers and her native Germany, jumped to the conclusion that Sabine was gone. One of her best friends from Germany flew to Tampa in the hopes that Sabine would be found by the time she landed. When she showed up and there was still no trace of Sabine, she concluded her friend was dead. She knew Sabine would not simply disconnect from those closest to her. The two of them spoke almost daily for 30 years. Cumber would be interviewed by the local media. He admitted that he had a criminal record and said he understood why law enforcement and the public would assume he had something to do with Sabine's disappearance, but he swore he had nothing to do with it. He said he regretted the argument the two had. He also insisted he would not hurt her because she was so generous with him, and he loved her. There was another strange wrinkle to the story. Sabine's vehicle was discovered stolen. A man by the name of Robert Corona was arrested after he was pulled over while driving Sabine's car. Corona was arrested on November 6th, two days after she had gone missing. He ran from arresting deputies, but didn't get far. He was charged with grand theft auto and resisting arrest. At first, Corona said he had been partying with Sabine the night deputies found her car, but he didn't stick to that story. The truth is, he found the car unlocked with the keys in the ignition. It had been parked outside a bar on the island. Some of Sabine's blood was found in the interior of the car, but no evidence was ever uncovered linking Corona to Sabine's disappearance. Meanwhile, Cumber remained a person of interest. Deputies kept their eye on him, and they took comfort in knowing he was not a flight risk. In May 2009, Cumber was sentenced to 13 and a half years in prison for violating his probation related to his arson conviction. He had been caught in the Ocala area driving on a suspended license. Elizabeth Johnson told me that Cumber's prison sentence meant detectives could take their time and build a case against him. He was actually serving um, a prison sentence for a violation of probation for a previous offense. You know, the prosecutors and detectives had been in contact with him. He was in prison, so I, I don't think they felt a huge rush. So they wanted to take their time, and I think over that time, Um, Before he was going to get released on that violation of probation, they were able to negotiate a plea deal. There was a long wait for that plea deal, almost seven years. During that time, residents questioned whether it was Cumber who killed Sabine or whether it was Bueller. The latter had sought a declaration that Sabine was dead. 
He was in line to collect $300,000 in life insurance if she was, in fact, declared dead. That raised more than a few eyebrows. Bueller, however, attended vigils for his wife on the anniversaries of her death. He cooperated with authorities, and he was the one who called them to report that Sabine was missing. People also wondered about Corona, but deputies knew he was not connected to her death. All signs pointed to Cumber. A fire had even been set at Sabine's hotel a month after her death. It was ruled suspicious in nature. Rumors swirled that Cumber set the fire. That was only logical considering his history. When the fire was set, he was not yet in prison and had no alibi. He denied having anything to do with it and was never charged. Several searches were conducted up and down the island. Manatee officials recruited neighboring jurisdictions to help out. Sarasota loaned Manatee a radar machine, but no remains were found. Even though Anna Maria is a small island, it seemed there was no way to find Sabine's skeletal remains without the killer or a witness coming forward. Even without a body, authorities officially charged Bill Cumber in October 2012, almost four years after Sabine's disappearance. Three years after that, Cumber finally cracked. Cumber entered a plea in court. Then after the hearing, he sat down with a prosecutor and confessed to everything. How long, how long would you say you were choking her? Like a minute, uh, more? What would you say? Until she wasn't moving. Okay. Then Cumber led authorities to the scene of the body. Here again is Elizabeth Johnson. There had been several hearings in the case where nothing had really happened. And then all of a sudden he's entering this plea deal, he gives them this confession, and then he's riding out with them to the, the beach. I would say the beach is maybe, a, depending on traffic, a 10-minute drive from the courthouse in Manatee County. He pretty much led them straight to the pavilion where um, he had buried her body. And it, actually in the confession, they asked him, did you mark the place? Like, how are you going to know where it is? And he said, you'll see when I take you there, I, I know where it is. And I think that's because that pavilion was there, that that was sort of the marker. And that pavilion was actually a place where he and Sabine would go and have wine and, and spend time. So that had been a sort of a special place for them in their relationship. Cumber, with his wrists and ankles shackled, walked investigators down a passageway down the road from Haley's and then led them to the covered pavilion. It took two days for a crew to uncover the remains, but once they were found and matched to the victim, the mystery of Sabine's disappearance was finally solved. I think everyone is really ready to see this chapter draw to a close. Um, I know one of the lead detectives on the case, Jeffrey Bliss, was there for the confession, and he was there when they were doing the excavation. And it, it went very slowly, right, because they don't want to disturb the remains. So they're only digging, you know, four to six inches at a time. It actually, they had to return the next day because they didn't find the body um, when they initially started digging. Um, and then if I recall correctly, the first thing they found were the Converse sneakers that she was wearing. And at that point when that happened, um, they knew that they had found her and that they were going to bring that closure to her family. Um, but, you know, this is October, which is pretty high time for vacation in 
Anna Maria. So you had people out on the beach who were just having their vacation. You have all this area cordoned off with police tape. So that was definitely um, a weird dynamic where you had, you know, the passerbys trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and then they were trying to, of course, secure the scene um, to make sure that they could find her and, and you know, all the, all the remains and anything else that they might need for the case. In exchange for disclosing the location of Sabine's body, Cumber pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and received a sentence of 20 years in prison. He remains incarcerated at Graceville Correctional Facility in Jackson County, located in the Florida Panhandle, north of Panama City Beach. The 48-year-old is scheduled to be released in November 2031, at which time he will be 61 years old. A book has been written about this case. Both the Bradenton Herald and the Sarasota Herald Tribune wrote more than 100 stories about it. Investigative Discovery aired a special on it, as did Dateline. It remains one of the most talked about murder cases in Manatee County history. It also remains a memorable case for Elizabeth Johnson, who will never forget covering the long-awaited discovery of Sabine Musil Bueller's remains. Say it's it's definitely up there. I think it's it's one of those cases. What's so strange about it is it almost, and I don't want to sound insensitive, but it almost is like a novel. You know, you have this old sleepy Florida coastal town. You have this sort of bad boy who goes to prison and becomes ten pals with this woman, and then they come out and have this relationship, and then not long after, a fight ultimately leads to her death. Seven years later, um, he leaves detectives to her body on the beach right down the, the road from where um, she operated a hotel. So I, I think that is the, the details of this case are definitely unique and I think very specific to Florida. Thank you for listening. I will be on vacation this week, so there will be an extra wait for episode 61 of Sun Crime State. But please tune in on November 12th, at which time I'll be profiling one of Florida's most notorious convicted serial killers, Gerald Stano, who once was employed by the very newspaper that employs me. You won't want to miss that episode. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.